0: Why did Jesus have to die? I've been in church all my life, and I've been told what you've been told. Jesus died in order to forgive sin. But I wonder, why couldn't God have just said, I forgive you? You and I forgive people every day, and nobody has to die in the process. We forgive our spouse when he or she hurts us. We forgive our children when they lie to us. We forgive our coworkers when they betray us. We forgive our classmates when they make fun of us. We forgive our neighbors when they anger us. We forgive church members when they ridicule us. We do our part to reconcile and restore relationships, and in the process, nobody has to die. So I wonder this morning, Why did Jesus have to die? It is with that thought in mind that I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. This morning, I want to begin reading at verse 21. I want to conclude at verse 26. And I ask you to follow along as I read Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. But now... A righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that it adds to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. It was Dr. Leon Morris who said of the passage that I just read for you, it is the single most important paragraph ever written. It was Frank Thielman in his commentary on Romans. Who reminds us that in the ancient text, everything I read for you is one complex sentence. So you and I could say that what Paul wrote in this passage is the single greatest sentence ever to be written in the sacred script. He comes to the end of nearly a two chapter indictment of all humanity. In Romans chapter one, Verses 18 to 32, he indicted all of his culture, saying that God had handed them over to their own selfish destruction. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, Paul equally indicts the person who regards himself to be moral, but not all that religious. And Paul says, you are just as guilty of sin as anybody else in our culture. In Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to Romans chapter 3, verse 8, he then turns his sights against the Jewish people, Jewish believers, and he says, even you are equally and utterly sinful, for you boast about having the word of God. You boast about having the law of God, but obedience to that law will not bring about your righteousness. You come to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. That portion leading up to our passage. And Paul just concludes that Jew and Gentile alike are all sinners. For there is no one righteous, no, not one. And then we come to our passage. And it begins with two powerful words. But now. It's a contrast where he uses a sublime conjunction. I've told you before and I'll tell you many times still I love the big butts of the bible and this is a huge butt It was Joseph who said to his jealous brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. The psalmist said, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And elsewhere, the apostle Paul will say in his Ephesian correspondence that we were by nature objects of wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible is stuffed with big butts. And when you come to this passage of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, It is Paul who says a huge but. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. Friends, this sacred sentence of Scripture is so power-packed that you and I would do well to look at it with open eyes and open hearts. If you will indulge me. I want us this morning just to slowly walk through this paragraph. I want you to have your Bible open. And together, let's gaze upon the Scripture of God, which is so reliable and trustworthy that you can always believe it. Paul says, But now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Every word and every phrase is dripping with powerful meaning. But now, a righteousness from God. Now that's a familiar phrase. The last time that Paul wrote that phrase was in Romans chapter 1 verse 17. That the gospel reveals a righteousness from God. I made a statement a couple of weeks ago that you cannot understand the book of Romans apart from this word righteousness. In fact, that phrase, righteousness from God, is mentioned seven times in this sacred letter. Yes, the number seven is the number of totality and completion. But greater still, that phrase, righteousness from God, is mentioned more in Romans than in all of the rest of the New Testament combined. Paul says, if you're going to understand anything about this sweet gospel that we have in Christ, you must understand this righteousness from God. So here in our passage, he revisits the phrase, righteousness from God that he describes as apart from law. What does he mean by that? He means that you do not achieve this righteousness by obedience to the law. You cannot obey the law enough to be granted this righteousness from God. It is apart from law. It is not given to you through obedience to the law. And this righteousness that's apart from law has been made known. In the Greek language, there is a verb tense called the perfect tense. We have nothing like it in the English language. In the Greek language, the perfect tense communicates an action that took place in the past but still carries present day consequences. In other words, it doesn't ever lose its power. It doesn't ever lose its punch. It's as powerful the day that it happened as it is today. So what Paul is saying is that this righteousness from God, which is made known apart from law, not through obedience of the law, it has been made known to us. It has been declared unto us that God has done something in the past. And this activity of God, which has been done in the past, is so powerful that it still carries today the same powerful punch that it had the very first day that he did it. So this righteousness from God, it has been made known. It's been made known to us today and to all those in the future that they will know this righteousness. It's a righteousness that while it's apart from law, it's something to which the law and prophets testify. So he quickly says that this righteousness from God does not contradict the law. No, the law and the prophets testify to it. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament declares that God will do something. He will have some activity. And by that activity, he will make known his righteousness. You go to a place in the law like Genesis 22, where Father Abraham takes his one and only son Isaac, goes up Mount Moriah. And there, he is told to sacrifice him. But at the very last moment, God says, don't kill your son. And there was a male lamb caught in the thicket, caught by its horns. And the Lord said, you sacrifice that male lamb in place of your son Isaac, and it's the first picture of substitutionary atonement. God is revealing the activity that he is about to do that will declare his righteousness. You go to a place in the prophets like Isaiah 53, and it's there where he speaks that suffering servant, that glorious Messiah who will come, and by his stripes we will be healed. That somehow This Messiah will die in our place. He'll be buried and on the third day he'll be raised from the dead. All of that is foretold in the beautiful passage of Isaiah chapter 53. Here Paul says that God's activity of righteousness has been made known. It's it's not something you achieve by obeying the law but even the law and the prophets testify to its reality. Verse 22, this righteous from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This righteousness, that word righteousness, it it means God's justice. It means his equality. It means his moral purity. It's a judicial term that means to be declared innocent, to be in right standing. This righteousness from God is achieved by you and granted to you and given unto you and inherited by you. And it comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The only way that you can be declared righteous is by faith. It's not by works. There's no way you can earn it. There's no way you can achieve it. There's no way you can merit it. It is by faith. That word faith is the same word as belief. It implies trust. And what are we trusting in? We are trusting in Jesus. We're trusting in his accomplished work of what he's done on the cross for us. So this righteousness comes from God and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. And to whom is this righteousness given? all who believe. Just as he's already indicted all people, Jew and Gentile alike, as completely and utterly sinner, sinful, stillborn in their spirituality, for they are born in sin. We are born in sin. We are completely and utterly dead. There's no way we can awaken ourselves up unto God's salvation. The only way that God's righteousness is bestowed upon us is by faith in Jesus Christ. And whenever anybody has faith in Jesus. They go from no life to life. They go from condemnation to salvation. And it's given to all who believe. For there is no difference. In verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, completely and utterly sinful. All of us, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul lumps all of us in the same messy lot. One theologian said it this way, you may think of yourself as somehow better than the prostitute or the murderer or the thief or the liar. And while you may consider yourself more moral than that individual, and you may put them down in the valley, at best, in your morality, you're at the top apex of the Alps. But then the theologian wrote, but neither you nor they have the capacity To reach the righteous stars of perfection of God. Wherever you find yourself on the moral mountain, whether you're down in the valley and you're the scum underbelly of society, or whether you regard yourself as somebody who's completely moral and you're at the apex of the mountain, regardless of where you find yourself, neither you nor they can reach up and touch the stars of God's righteousness. And friend, can I also add this? That because of our sinful heart, all of us are capable of doing any sin. Don't ever think to yourself, I could not do that. Yes, you could. Because our sin, our heart is a wretched place. It is full of sin. All of us are completely and utterly sinful. And there's really nothing that we could not do save the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of us have sinned. That word sin, it means to miss the mark. You may realize that Paul lifts this out of an athletic arena. In an archery contest in the first century, in order for a person to advance to the next level of competition, he had to nail the bullseye on four consecutive targets. If he missed any one of the targets, it was called sin because he missed the mark. He missed the bullseye. And to sin would mean that he was disqualified from the competition. It didn't matter if he nailed the first one and the second one and the third one. But the fourth one sailed right, sailed left. He shot it too low, shot it too high. For whatever reason, the fourth one missed the mark, he was disqualified. When Paul sees this, he says, spiritually speaking, all of us have missed the mark. All of us have missed God's standard of perfection. All of us have sinned. And by that, we are spiritually disqualified from the kingdom of God. There's nothing good inside of us that can merit God's righteousness upon us. There's nothing good inside of us where God is obligated to give us his salvation. All of us are completely and utterly sinful. We have missed the mark. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That phrase, fall short, is written in the present tense. Now, we have the present tense in English, and we say, well, we know what that means. It's something that happens right now. But in the ancient language of Greek, the present tense not only meant a present action, but a continuous action. So Paul is saying all of us have missed the mark. All of us have sinned, and we continue to fall short. It's not just that we fall short today, and somehow we're going to outgrow it. No, we fall short today, and we fall short every day. The only thing we can guarantee is that we will continue in our own power to fall short of God's standard of perfection. So, all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And then he says in verse 24, We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We are justified. Oh, that word justified is a beautiful term, it's rich in its uh, theological overtones. The word justified can be broken down in its syllables to mean just as if I'd and then add never sinned. Maybe you've heard that before, that the word justified means to be declared innocent. It's to be declared as if you had never sinned. That's what it means, to be justified. When God looks at us, he sees us as innocent. We are justified, just as if we had never committed any sin. It was C.H. Hodge who said, the opposite of justification is condemnation. And to be condemned not only means that you're punished, but it implies that you're worthy of punishment. So if you're condemned, you have no one to blame but yourself. If you're condemned, it means not only that you'll be punished, but you are worthy to be punished. He writes in the same way, to be justified. To be regarded as if you had never sinned. To be justified means not only that you won't be punished, but it means that you're not worthy of punishment. It means that if God were to punish the justified, then God would be unjust. Let that sink in. That if you are justified, if you are looked upon as one who has never sinned, if you are innocent in God's sight, that if God were to punish the just, then he would no longer be just. And we are justified Freely, that word freely means without calls, literally means without any exchange of money. You cannot buy off God. You can't purchase your salvation. You can't upgrade your holiness. No, we are justified freely. And this free justification is only seen from our perspective. From our perspective, justification is free. Declared innocence is free. We don't have to do anything. It's all God and none of us. We are justified freely. All you have to do is come to him by faith and believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried on the third day, he was raised from the dead, and you will have life everlasting. It's free unto us. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan one day was trying to talk about this free justification. He was speaking to a coal miner. And that coal miner was really struggling with the concept of God's salvation being free. He said, I've got to do something to merit this. I mean, it's got to cost me something, right? And G. Campbell Morgan repeatedly said, you are justified freely by faith in Jesus Christ. You are justified freely. And the coal miner continued to uh, to resist and to come back with more answers. And G. Campbell Morgan was just praying, Lord, please give me analogy. And then the analogy came. He said to the coal miner, how did you get down into the mines today? And the coal miner said, well, I just uh, rode the elevator down. And G. Campbell Morgan said, oh, it's too easy. Certainly you had to do something else. I mean, all you did was just hop on the elevator and go down? Yeah, that's all I did, hop on the elevator and go down. Well, it certainly had to cost you something. Did you have to pay a token? Did you have to give some of your earnings? No, 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 it didn't cost me a dime. So, so there, there's an elevator in the mine shaft, and all you have to do is get on that free of charge, and it'll take you right down to where you need to be. Well, yeah. Well, it just got there automatically? <laughs> no. No. The boss man, it cost him everything to have to put it in there. And, and then we go and we ride the elevator down. I'm sure it cost the company a lot of money. And then the light bulb went off. And he realized, Oh. So what you're telling me is that this salvation, this righteousness is free to me, but it cost the boss man something. It cost God something. And G. Campbell Morgan said, you're exactly right. Now you've got it. It, You are justified freely. But it did cost God something. Paul writes in our passage that we are justified freely by his grace. We are not justified by our works. We're not justified by our effort. We're not justified by our obedience. We are justified by his grace and his grace alone. Grace means a gift. It's God's gift. If you like uh, an acrostic or an acronym, then let me give you one for grace. You can chew on it for a couple of days. It is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. That's grace. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. God declared his righteousness at the death of Jesus Christ. And what do we say of that? That's grace, my friend. Grace is marvelous. Grace is majestic. Philip Yancey says that grace is the world's best last word. It's by grace that we have been saved. It's through faith, it's not of ourselves, lest we boast. It's because of God. So we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The word redemption means to be delivered. It means to set the captive free. It means to purchase those who were enslaved and liberate them. It's redemption. We know something about redemption today. We can redeem a coupon. We take that coupon to the store. And we get something free from it. It doesn't cost us anything, but whoever gave us a coupon, it costs them an arm and a leg. In the same way, the redemption that's been purchased for you doesn't cost you a dime, but it costs God, his very Son. We are redeemed. We are liberated. You may think to yourself, "I'm not enshackled by anybody or anything. I'm not enslaved. I'm a free man. I'm a free woman. I live in the United States of America. We're free. My friends, we have the most vicious taskmaster you could ever imagine. It's called sin. Sin enslaves us. Sin is a vicious taskmaster. Beats you up every day and twice on Sunday. Some of us walk around with the bruises of our sin. Some of us walk around with the uh, symbolic lacerations of our sin. Some of us walk around and we have the scars to prove it that sin is a terrible taskmaster. And Jesus came to liberate you, my friend. He came to set you free. He came to break every chain that binds you. So this redemption comes by Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that we are liberated, through Christ that we are set free. And while we've been talking about some glorious theological issues and topics so far, we still have not answered the question, yes, but why did Jesus have to die? Verses 25 and 26 answer the question. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. God presented him. Who must be the him? You just have to revert back to the previous antecedent, and it is Christ Jesus. So God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Your translation may say sacrifice of atonement. A lot of the newer translations say that. I gotta be honest with you, King Jimmy got it right. In the King James Version of the English Bible, he says that Jesus was presented as the propitiation of our sins. That's precisely what that word is. Jesus is our propitiation. And you say, Pastor, you just lost me. What in the world does that big word mean? Propitiation simply means the payment that appeases the wrath of God. The payment that appeases the righteous wrath and the holy hostility of God. Let me let you know on a little secret. The reason why you cannot pay for your own sin is because you don't have the currency to cover it. You can't cover the bill. Your sin is so gross. My sin is so gross. It is so far reaching that you and I don't have the collateral. We don't have the currency. There's no way that we can pay it. So in our place, God presented Jesus as a propitiation of our sin because it's Jesus and Jesus alone, the God-man, fully God and fully human, who is the only suitable substitute for us. He's the only one who has the cachet. He's the only one who has the bling bling. He's the only one who has the currency that can pay our sin debt. So God sent Jesus to die so that we might live because Jesus is the only one who can sufficiently pay the debt. So God presented him as a propitiation. Oh, there are some who struggle with the idea of an angry God. God's wrath, his hostility. There are many believers who struggle with this whole word. In fact, they don't even like the word propitiation. But my friend, it's not a word that we need to excommunicate from the text. It's a word that we need to trust and believe because God does have a righteous wrath and a holy hostility towards sin. He has to because he's just. So in response, Jesus came as our propitiation. He came as our payment to appease sufficiently and completely the wrath of God for our sin. This word that is accurately translated propitiation, there is another meaning and it is equally valid. It could be rendered mercy seat that Jesus was presented as a mercy seat in your translation maybe even lower in your Bible in the little footnotes it may have something like that that's an appropriate translation of this word it's the it's the way it's translated in other places in the New Testament and in the Greek version of the Old Testament this word that means mercy seat what's the mercy seat Well, historically, that's the golden lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's the place where God met with his people for forgiveness. That's the place where God did business with the mediator. Historically, it was Moses. After Moses, it was the high priest. And every year, the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies He would have the blood sacrifice from that pure, precious Lamb of God. He would take that blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so the mediator would stand there between God and man, there at the mercy seat where God would do business with his people and offer the promise of forgiveness. And the Apostle Paul says in the very same way, at Calvary, at the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, it is there that we see in in its full reality the mercy seat of God. It is Jesus Christ. He is the mediator between God and man. He is the one who secures our forgiveness of sin because he paid the sin debt he did not owe because we have a sin debt that we cannot pay. And it's only by his blood that the currency can be exchanged so that God can be be appeased in his righteous wrath towards your sin. Boy, that's a mouthful, but it's, it's theologically accurate. Because what Paul is saying here is that Jesus, he really is the mercy seat. He is the place of forgiveness. He is the only mediator that we can go to and through and stand innocent in the presence of God. So God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, as propitiation of our sin, as the mercy seat through faith in his blood. It's through faith in the accomplished work of Jesus that we go from condemnation to salvation, that we go from no faith to faith. And Jesus died so that our sins may be paid for. He did this to demonstrate his justice. If God just gave a wink and a nod, if God just swept your sin and my sin under the carpet, he would run the risk of being unjust. In fact, I would say his justice would be hijacked. Because God is just, penalty for sin has to be paid. There's something Embedded in all of us where we seek justice. Wherever there's injustice, we rage with righteous indignation. We see injustice in the marketplace and we get all riled up. We see injustice on the street corner and we get frustrated. We see injustice in the church, injustice on the ball field. We see injustice um, in the classroom and we get angry about it, rightfully so. Because who stamped inside of you this whole idea of justice? Your creator, God. Because God is just, when we see injustice, we rile up in the same way. God is just, and because he's just, penalty for sin has to be paid. So the apostle continues. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. His forbearance is his patience. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was symbolic but insufficient. It was symbolic that there will come a day when the Lamb of God will be slain. There's coming a day when sin will really be eradicated. There's coming a day when sin will be paid for. But every year at Yom Kippur, it just pushed off the wrath of God for one more year. It didn't sufficiently deal with the sin. So God, in his patience and forbearance, he let the sin of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Rachel and Esther, he let all the sins of God's people to go fully unpunished until the coming of Christ. He did this to show his justice. For in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice even at the present time. So you and I look to the cross of Calvary. Friend, let me tell you, the one single event that has cosmic proportions where God intervened in all of humanity is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Those who live before the cross, they look forward to it. Those of us who live after the cross, we look back upon it. But the cross of Jesus Christ, the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, it was there that Jesus died for our sin and dealt with our sin sufficiently and eternally. It is there where God intervened in humanity. And that activity of God changes everything. Because now he's made known his righteousness. That righteousness that can be applied to us by faith. We simply believe what Jesus did for us. We're answering the question, why did Jesus die? Let me read this last line before I give you the full answer. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Why did Jesus have to die? In his justice, penalty for sin had to be paid. And in his grace, he made the penalty payment for us. All right, y'all didn't get that. You didn't get that, because that's pretty good. I got to tell you, that's pretty good right there. Why did Jesus have to die? Because in God's justice, penalty for your sin has to be paid Either it'll be paid by you for all of eternity in a real place called hell, which by the way, hell is not a figment of the imagination. Hell is not just something that we think about and it's just something that's not real. Hell is a real place and we will either be condemned in a real place called hell for all of eternity or we will believe that Jesus died in our place and sufficiently took care of our sin debt and all of our condemnation. But Jesus came and died on the cross Why? Because in God's justice, penalty for sin has to be paid. And in his grace, he made the penalty payment for us. So all we have to do is just accept it by faith. It was John R. W. Stott who said, faith's only function is to accept what grace offers. Grace offers you forgiveness, and by faith you accept it. Grace tells you that Jesus died on the cross, and by faith you accept it. Grace says that Jesus was placed in your grave, and by faith you accept it. Grace says that Jesus was raised from the dead and by faith you accept it. You just accept the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine. He paid a sin debt. He didn't know because we have a sin debt that we don't have the collateral to pay. So why did Jesus die? Because in God's justice, penalty for your sin has to be paid and in his grace this is a uh, this is amazing in his grace he made the penalty payment for you it was a sermon that was preached a long time ago by Andy Stanley he told the story of was then two-year-old daughter Allie Stanley said, one day I walked out into my garage and on the hood of my car, my favorite car, there were three large circular scribbles that had obviously been etched by a key or a rock or a very pointy stick. When I saw this, he said, I automatically thought about all the hassle I'm going to have to go through to get this damage fixed and his second thought was who is the culprit who did this his first mind his first thought in his mind went to his five-year-old son Garrett Garrett was always getting into trouble highly mischievous so Andy Stanley said Garrett come here Garrett walked in the garage did you do this and Garrett quickly said no daddy It wasn't me. Allie did it. He said, Allie, your little two-year-old sister, you're trying to tell me that Allie did this? Yes, sir. Allie did it. Okay, Garrett, go back inside. Allie, come here. She walks out, and he says, now, darling, precious sweet girl, (laughs) did you do this to the hood of daddy's car? And she looked up at him and she said, yes, daddy, I did. He said, in that moment, I thought to myself, how do I communicate the severity of these damages so that my two-year-old daughter can understand? She can't understand that I've got to go get an estimate, maybe even two. She doesn't understand that I've got to work with insurance companies that really don't have my benefit in mind. She don't understand, I've got to get a, a rental car. I've got to take it to the body shop. It's probably not going to be fixed the first, the right, uh, right the first time, so I've got to take it back a second time. I'm going to have more time and more money. By the end of the day, this may cost me $1,500. How's she going to understand $1,500? What am I supposed to say to her? Allie, this is going to cost Daddy $1,500. Pay up, little lady. How's a two-year-old girl going to fathom the severity of the damages? He said, so I did the only thing I could do. I stooped down to her level. I got on one knee. I put my arm around her. And I said, Allie, don't ever do this again to Daddy's car. And she looked up at him and she said, Daddy, I am sorry. I love you. He said they hugged it out. And then she went on her way to play. And then he said in his sermon, one of the great difficulties of life is that we don't understand the severity of our sin. We don't know the damage that our sin has fully impacted, not only the dents and scratches of our lives, but the lives of others. He went on to say, we just think of ourselves as red men living in a red world and everything's a different shade of red. If it's good, it's a lighter shade of red. If it's bad, it's a deeper shade of red. We think of God as the best thing in the world. He must be the lightest shade of red. But the reality is that God is no shade of red at all. He stands in stark contrast to our sin. So how is it that God can communicate to us the depravity of our lives? How can God tell us so that we might begin to understand the damages that will come as a result of the sinful, selfish activity of our lives. How, how can God communicate so that we might understand? God stooped down to our level, He wrapped Himself in flesh. He put His arm around us by stretching His arms on a cross, and He died because he's the only one who has the currency to pay for the damages. We don't have enough money or capacity to pay for our sin debt. Out of all the religions in the world, it is only Christianity that shows the self-movement of God. Every other world religion tells us what we must do in order to get to God. It is only Christianity that tells us that God stooped down to us. It's the self-movement of God. Nobody had to kick God. Nobody had to drag God. Nobody had to force God to come. It's the self-movement of God, where God himself stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth for the only sheer purpose of paying your sin debt. When I begin to fathom this, when I begin to allow this to sink into my spirit, the only thing I can say Is Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe sin and left a crimson stain but he washed it white as snow I don't know if you heard me but I said Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin it left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. All to him. I owe. Sin it left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. So praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. His name is Jesus. He came to die on the cross for your sins and mine. Why did Jesus have to die? Because in God's righteousness, penalty for your sin has to be paid. And in his grace, he made the penalty payment for us. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for your word, which is true reliable, trustworthy. The only shot we've got is faith in Christ. If there's someone here who has never trusted Jesus as Savior, let it happen today. For those of us who are believers, let us walk out of here more indebted to your grace. Maybe we need to come and pray for our loved ones. As you lead, we'll respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.